G'day, this is Jared McKenna. Andrew Hart. And we want to welcome you to a new season of Inverse, where we're exploring with surprising people how the good book can turn our world of domination, exploitation, alienation and oppression upside down. Much like our Nonviolent Atonement series, our new Liberating Liturgies series will be interspersed alongside our usual Inverse interviews to encourage a more healing, liberative and ultimately Christ-like embodiment of Christian formation and community. Now, you'll be pleased to know via our Patreon, there are many ways to connect to this global community that are seeking to be formed in a liberative life of discipleship through offerings like Decolonizing Sunday School, BIPOC and White Work Spaces for unlearning the realities and subtleties of white supremacy, as well as our Family Brunch for connecting to the community and our Inverse Economic Justice Initiative. Inverse might be in the top 1% of listened to podcasts in the world, but it is only thanks to the generosity of a committed community of people like you contributing to the Patreon that make Inverse possible. So we just want to say thank you. So why liberating liturgies? Well, Drew, as you have noticed and call out in your own work, Christendom is crumbling. The chaplains of the establishment express anxiety that Christianity is no longer at the centre of many our societies. In this series, we want to explore what if instead of being liberated from liturgies, healing looks like being formed in liturgies that liberate. So come on a journey with us as we refuse to allow Christianity to be defined and dominated and monopolized by blasphemous forms of faith that wield the name of Christ as a weapon. Instead, we invite you to learn from traditions where the name of Christ has embodied the liberating love that has conquered the grave. Welcome to the series with us, friends. So we've got a excellent guest today. We've got Terrence Hawkins, who is a follower of Jesus, a father, a son, a practitioner of the Black Radical Church tradition, and a lifelong resident of Winston-Salem, North Carolina. He is built in solidarity with his community as an organizer, pastor, and an artist for close to two decades. Terrence is the co-founder of a collective of local activists called the Drum Majors Alliance, the founder and director of Lit City, a youth development initiative, and he currently serves as the co-director for the School of Love, an alternative spiritual community and cohort geared towards cultivating rhythms of radical discipleship. He co-authored the book, Liberating Church, a 21st century Hush Harbor Manifesto. Mm. So uh, Terrence, welcome to Inverse Podcasts. Grateful to have you. Honored to be here. Honored to be here. Yeah, awesome. You know, I've been wanting you to get on this podcast for a while, so I'm glad that we could make it happen. Um, our paths have intersected in multiple ways, um, but I'm particularly um, uh, interested in you sharing, especially as we're, you know, moving along in this liberating liturgies theme, to share a little bit about the School of Love and the Drum Majors Alliance work that you've been doing on the ground in your community. Um, those things kind of have moved me when I've heard about it. So I'd love for you to share a little bit with our audience what you got going on. Sure, uh, I'm happy to share. So in 2014, in the wake of the police murder of Mike Brown, um, some of my kinfolk who found themselves in multiracial spaces that were generally oriented around whiteness yep. and some folks that were a part of black churches 
um, that were really bound by Euro-colonial forms of Christianity. Um, we found ourselves longing, panting, thirsting for a space where we could just be undone, uncut, and lament, express our anger, our fears, our frustrations, and ultimately lean into God's presence and figure out what God is doing in this moment and seek to join that activity. And so the Drum Majors Alliance really um, grew out of these hush harbor gatherings, as we would call them. Mm. Uh, they were off the grid. Some mm. of us could get in trouble for some of the conversations we were having based on uh, church staffs that we were on, based on associations. But we, what began to happen in that space is um, as we first expressed the frustration, as we lamented, as we raged in many ways, mm. um, the love of God met us there. And that space began to become a space of healing, care, and imagination. Um, and after about three months, someone said, you know, I feel like this needs to leave its underground um, nature, maintain it, but take on a new life that the broader community could engage with. And so uh, in January 2015, we did our first um, public gathering. We called it a kneel-in. Kneel-ins are sort of an unknown aspect of uh, the Black freedom struggle in the um, mid-20th century. And what they entailed was, in most cases, multiracial groups showing up in white churches and doing some act of worship within the worship service that basically disrupted and subverted what was happening and put a demand on the leadership to respond. There were some cases where you could say, if I could be Pentecostal for a second, a, a, a revival broke out. Hey. Mm -hmm. But in most cases, um, the revival didn't break out in the space of the church building. It broke out as folks were arrested, um, mm -hmm. caged, and aftermath of those types of things. And so from that time, we've basically leaned in on a mission which says we want to equip, organize, and mobilize disciples of Jesus locally to participate in local and national and global struggles for justice and transformation. And what that's looked like is not the old brand of the civil rights movement where the church is at the front, where the black mm -hmm. preacher is. It's more for us look like showing up in solidarity with grassroots orgs that often don't share our faith, that often don't share, um, you know, all the same views as us, but showing up with a posture of humility and seeking to serve and build in solidarity with them and pushing forward movement. So we participate in everything from uh, work around housing injustice in Winston-Salem. We have the 17th worst eviction rate in the United States prior to COVID, and we know COVID just ex exasperated that. Um, we've, uh, worked with issues around educational injustice, you name it. Um, but one of the things that I think has become central to our activist community and the broader community in Winston-Salem are our freedom rides. And that is a local pilgrimage. Mm -hmm. We start, um, at the beginnings of this land that's now known as Winston-Salem, um, at the beginning of its settlement. It was once the Tutilo and Saponi people's, um, mm -hmm. space. Uh, they were the caretakers of this land, um, but a peculiar group of German um, religious folks called the Moravians settled mm -hmm. here and eventually capitulated to white supremacy and participated in the brutal institution of chattel slavery. Mm -hmm. So we start wow. from there 
And we raise up this long leg legacy of black radicalism in Winston-Salem um, from the first known um, escapee, uh, who we call Baba Abraham. Um, mm -hmm. His Mandinka name was Samba, as best we know from the records. Um, we go to the local 22, which is a legendary Black women-led um, workers' rights union. Um, mm. We go to the first Black Panther Party of the South that was founded in Winston-Salem, all the way wow. to the present. We contend with these um, these current issues on that freedom ride. So it's like a local pilgrimage. Um, and then School of Love. School of Love is really centered on radical discipleship. You know, the word radical means to get at the root of a thing. Yep. And so we understand following Jesus um, to be centered upon the work or the calling to love God with our entire being and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And mm -hmm. Jesus grounds that neighborly love in a tale, a parable that really calls us to something revolutionary. It calls us not only to individual transformation, but calls us to social and political transformation. And so what we attempt to do is bring together folks from diverse walks of life, black, brown, white, uh, women, men, um, across different religious traditions, Episcopalians, Pentecostals, Baptists, um, Presbyterians, um, compassionate conservatives, liberals, radicals like myself, we all go on a 20-month journey where we practice rhythms of discipleship. Mm -hmm. um, and some of those rhythms include daily common prayer. So Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, our lives are booby-trapped by this um, <laughs> common prayer practice. Um, we uh, practice Sabbath as a community. We have a mm -hmm. justice practice where we're working in solidarity with grassroots organizations. We do um, an education practice. Uh, we do breaking bread once a month, which we really think is our attempt to mirror something closer to what the early church understood as a worship gathering um, and other things of that nature. But ultimately, uh, we say that our aim is to create beloved community across oppressive divides in the city of Winston-Salem and that to be a launching pad for liberationist activity in the city. Mm. Yes, mm. okay. And I should mention, I don't know if you knew this, Terrence, that uh, so last summer, I um, I don't think you were on a call, but when I was teaching uh, in Pasadena with John Frankie, we were doing this decolonizing Christianity thing. Amy, who's in your program, she hooked us in. So we actually joined in and logged in to start our day with the School of Love um, mm -hmm. for, it was probably like the Thursday wow. morning, just once, um, which was really That's beautiful. And so, yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't think I even told you that we had logged in for that, but yeah. It was glad, glad to hear that. When yeah, we initially so started, those were in person and then COVID, you know, taught mm -hmm. us these, you know, digital online rhythms. But yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm glad y'all were able to um, plug in with us. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, Terrence, um, I'm aware that you're not merely an activist, nor an organic um, intellectual and uh, theologian, uh, nor merely just a pastor, uh, but you're a worship leader with like youth work experience um, uh, stacked up behind you as well. And I don't know whether it's the um, the, the worship leader in, in you, but even, even in the naming of School of Love or Drum Major Alliance, I'm hearing, hearing Kingian riffs, um, or, oh, yeah. or, or Kingian samples. Um, but I can also he hear in, um, the influences of maybe a bit of Ched Myers as, as well, in terms mm -hmm. of the way that you're talking yeah. about radical discipleship. Um, Absolutely. uh, you're talking about like 
you're currently running a freedom school and I'm hearing other influences on Drew and I, like uh, Dr. Vincent Harding and uh, Reverend Jim Lawson, who have been so formative for, for both of us. I'm wondering these particular practices that you're naming, um, would you um, connect them to these traditions that are kind of being sampled in the background, yet you're doing something very new with them at the same time? And I don't want to take away, but uh, I can sense your improv. That's That's what I'm saying, and I respect it. Absolutely. So with School of Love specifically, um, my partner Clay and my sister uh, Venikia, we all um, help facilitate and, and lead School of Love. When we started dialoguing and coming together around this, what became clear is there were about four streams that we all had been bathing in or swimming in that seemed to have a lot of resonance with each other. Um, so for Clay, um, he had spent a lot of time studying monasticism, um, mm. which is necessarily my bag. You know, I, I, I dibble and dabble here, but that's not necessarily my bag, the European monasticism. But I do appreciate many of the things that come out of that. Um, another um, stream would be Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Finkenwalder, mm -hmm. um, underground college that he started under, you know, a Christo mm -hmm. fashion. Nazi Germany. Um, the other piece that I mentioned earlier is the Hush Harbor tradition, which was yeah. uh, this practice of illegal worship gatherings under the cover of night of enslaved Africans in the antebellum South and just kind of what was at work there. Um, and then lastly, um, influenced by Christian based communities in Latin, in Latin America. Ooh. And what all these different streams have in common is that they emerge in an apocalyptic moment. Um, we mm. could definitely look at the moment of World War II as sort of an apocalyptic moment and unveiling and unmasking of what the world is um, and the state of the world. Obviously, um, Gerald Horn calls um, the project of settler colonialism in the United States um, an apocalypse. He has a book mm -hmm. called Apocalypse of 1776, I believe. Um, and so that's an apocalyptic moment. But we believe that in those moments, God begins to do some creative things in community. And so mm. that's kind of what we've been playing around with, um, experimenting in. Uh, Dr. King used this language of experiments in love. And so we mm -hmm. see these as experiments in love. Sometimes I'll use the language of experiments in abolition. Um, but yeah, we're, we're trying to pull from these different spaces and places and put something together and put our own flavor, the, the, the uniqueness about the space that we're bearing witness in and uh, just see what God does. It's clumsy work. It's messy work. Mm -hmm. We don't do it anywhere close to perfect. But I will say that we are an earnest bunch of folks um, mm -hmm. attempting to bear witness in our time. But Terrence, welcome home, mate. Like, uh, honestly, <laughs> like, like, literally Drew and my children are named for the influences that you, you have mentioned, like whether it's based communities or uh, uh, the, the freedom movement or like literally that's what animates us. So um, you're going to find a, a home in inverse and uh, we're so glad you're in this space with us. Yeah. Glad to be so here. So Terrence, I know that you've long identified as a participant in the radical black church tradition. Um, we've had conversations. I know that you are uh, from the Amy Zion church tradition as well. Um, you know, so for this liberating liturgies uh, series, you know, 
folks are looking to learn and engage from traditions and practices, maybe that are not their own. So as people begin to um, listen to you, like how would you advise folks uh, to use Vincent Harding's language, swim in the, this liberative stream? There is a river, right? How do they get into this stream, but do so in ways that actually honor it? without engaging in kind of appropriative or plundering yeah. practices? Like, uh, what, what might that look like to you to kind of enter in from the outside? Yes, yes, that's an incredible question. Um, I'm thinking about John Brown right mm -hmm. now. Um, you know, I, I grew up in the Amy Zion Church, as you just said, Drew. Um, the Amy Zion Church, our nickname is the Freedom Church. Because all of our early bishops were abolitionists, our founding members included folks like Sojourner Truth, Harriet Tubman, Frederick Douglass. So from the root and core of its foundation is this pursuit of freedom and liberation. Um, and John Brown, um, I think, really gives us a way of, of thinking about this question. As I think about John Brown, I think about the intimacy that he had with oppressed people, friendships mm -hmm. um, that he had with oppressed groups. Um, but I, this phrase always comes to mind when I think about him. Friends of the oppressed must make themselves enemies, enemies of oppression. oppression. Hey, Amen. Hey. Amen. Friends of the oppressed must make themselves enemies of oppression. Mm -hmm. Now, I call myself an Afro-Methocostal sometimes. So like <laughs> Africanism of being like alive to the spirit world that shows up mm -hmm. in Azusa Street and Pentecostal traditions. Like I'm a little strand of the Ami Zion Church that has that. Not all Ami Zion churches are, are with that, but right. I'm a strand of that. Um, and I think um, as we think about the spirit's work, um, and we think about what God is calling us into. One of the most important things for those who want to learn from a tradition that's not their own is mm -hmm. to understand that this has to be an act of solidarity. The learning, um, the, 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 the learning that you the learn, the education that you receive mm -hmm. from being in these groups has to come in the context of solidarity. Otherwise, mm -hmm. it's really just you on an educational hamster wheel. It's you just trafficking in the, the United States Western practice of consumption. Um, mm -hmm. and I always tell folks, you know, people love to consume a black story, mm -hmm. a black artistic mm -hmm. expression. But very few people will commune with that story. And mm. so those who want to um, enter in and learn from those traditions have to take a posture of communion and solidarity. You can mm -hmm. consume what Martin and them said, what Ellen and them did, what mm -hmm. the Hush Harvest did, and be able to regurgitate it, spit it out. You can know all the right things to say. You can master the language of solidarity while still holding these um, internal um, orientations towards superiority. But mm -hmm. when you take it from just the mind, just being a tadpole, stuffing your head with information and you put your body in motion with a community, um, I think something different happens. And I think that's how yeah. we avoid 
um, a lot of the co-optation, appropriation. And as I say, as others have said, like the Juneteenth is an example of that. Um, there's a gentrification of the Juneteenth holiday happening. And yeah. I think it mm. comes as a result of folk not really communing and living, seeking to live in solidarity. Yeah. Mm. And might I mention, you mentioned John Brown. And of course, because he was such an enemy, they called him crazy, right? Like that was the only way mm -hmm. that they could characterize that full solidarity and commitment to the abolishment of the oppression was to call him out of his mind, right? And so I mm. think there's something actually quite powerful about that. That should be something that people should seek to to embrace as a badge, right? Let let the, this world of empire call me crazy for my commitments to my to my siblings, right? Yeah. Mm. Mm -hmm. Fools for Christ's sake. Absolutely. That's right. That's right. <laughs> oh, man. Terrence, um, I'm aware that uh, part of that co-opting comes out of what's often unnamed liturgies, liturgies um, uh, of larger society that um, uh, uh, work that we might not have signed up to, yet we swim in and have internalised and uh, move in structures that are animated by it. And last time uh, we were doing a Liberating Liturgies episode, um, we had um, uh, Reverend Otis Moss III on, and we we're talking about his father's close friend, Martin Luther King's diagnosis of um, uh, like the, the, the triple evils of um, uh, militarism, racism, um, and materialism um, that w we might name as simply capitalism uh, now that the Cold War is over and we can name things with um, such clarity. Um, I'm interested in your context, in um, the outworking of your calling, what other liturgies do you want us to be aware of that are counterforming us against um, the way of discipleship? Uh, what are those things that you want to name and say for us to be aware of? Yes. I like to riff off of Martin um, and hmm. expand the triple evils to the quintuple evils. So white supremacy, capitalism, which in some speeches, um, Martin explicitly names. There's one quote where he says, the evils of racism are just as evil as the evils of militarism and the evils of capitalism. And then he says something really radical. You can't get rid of one without getting getting rid of all of them. That's mm -hmm. out of Martin's own mouth. Now we we can do what we please with it, but Martin said it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so building upon white supremacy, capitalism, and militarism, I would say heteropatriarchy mm -hmm. and what we could call climate catastrophe, um, the, the 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 murder of the planet itself. And all those things are bound up with each other. Yeah. And I think they produce in us so many ailments, so many practices that are unconscious and, 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 and in many cases, um, in some cases, conscious. But I think what I would want to lift up in this moment is just the way that capitalism um, malforms us, un malforms our understanding of ourselves, malforms our attempts at communities at community mm. um and really just is a poison that that works through our bodies through our relationships through our our politics through our nations 
it, it is really a poison that I, I don't think can be understated. And so, mm-hmm. so often, even those of us who would uh, like to think we're people of good conscience, those of us who uh, would believe that we've come awake um, to the love of God, um, that we are aware of the kingdom of God in our midst, we often look in the mirror um, and the person that we see is interpreted under the lens of capitalism. What do I mean by Mm. that? Capitalism tells us that we must produce, 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 produce. Capitalism tells us all days on, no days off. Capitalism tells us that our relationships are a transaction. And it's quiet as kept, even in justice spaces. So much of what we do is transactional, um, not rooted in mutuality. Um, Capitalism is teaching us that everything can be commodified. There's literally nothing. You can commodify your face, commodify your children, commodify your voice, commodify it. You name it. There's a way to somehow figure out how to flip it. Um, and we see ourselves as brands. We see ourselves, you know, Jay-Z has the perfect neoliberal line. He doesn't say, mm. I don't have a businessman. I'm a businessman. Business man. <laughs> There's a, an unholy conversion from being the human to being mm. the corporation. And social media drives that impulse in us. Um, to see ourselves and to see everything we're attached to under the lens of a corporation. And so I think that is the most dangerous liturgy liturgy at work in our world. And it is dangerous to our souls, our bodies, our psyches. Mm. It's dangerous to our relationships. It's dangerous to our communities of faith. So many churches are more animated by market consumer principles than they are by the revolutionary spirit of God. Dangerous to our planet itself. Yeah. We're engaging, as the Croc Confession says, we're engaging in a way of being that demands an endless sacrifice from the poor and the planet itself. Mm-hmm. Um, we are we are engaging in such harm. Um, and I think one of the most important things in our times is to explicitly name the root of that harm, to name capitalism, to name materialism, as Martin would say it sometimes, as an idolatrous force uh, that must be resisted, that must be dismantled um, and must be confronted through practice. Um, mm. And so I think that's what's coming up for me most in this time um, as a liturgy that we're formed in and we have to create mm. counter liturgies. Um, to overcome. Mm. That's good. That's good. So, so we got these imperial liturgies that are forming us. I'm really interested in, you know, I mean, I've, I've long appreciated you. Um, and I'm always curious about like how people <laughs> are formed and shaped to become the people that they are. So I, I'd be curious to hear a little bit about like, you know, what did liturgy look like in your AME Zion church that you were raised in and then also, as you tell your story a little bit, also then, like, what does that look like in terms of the specifics? So, like, what does that actually look like for the School of Love, right? Like, mm. how how are you all specifically kind of forming folks? Anyway, I'd love to hear some of your story and how that unfolds. Yeah. Um, you know, Amy's, the Amy's Zion Church is where I met Black Jesus. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, 
it was so interesting growing up knowing this history and in the particular AME Zion church in spaces that I occupied, everybody's experience is not the same. <laughs> there are contradictions mm -hmm. within the tradition, like all yep. tradition. Yep. Mm -hmm. uh, but the spaces I occupied, there was this clear call to be in it, but not of it. Mm. Uh, yes, we live in the United States, but we're not called to be of it because we have a higher calling in Jesus um, rooted in the gospel. And that higher calling um, places certain demands on our lives uh, that require that we interrogate um, what we've been taught. So within the Ami Zion Church tradition, my experience was um, things that get taken for granted in other spaces would get lifted up. So preaching. Mm -hmm. um, we, we had these little tropes and you can call that like they're critiques of the tropes, but they were doing something important. So helping us to abandon the worship of Jesus of Norway and to worship mm -hmm. Jesus of Nazareth, the brown yeah. man <laughs> um, that lived, you know, very close to, you know, Africa, they would say, well, how did Jesus and his parents go down to Egypt to escape Herod's attempt to assassinate him and blend in in Africa if they weren't <laughs> people of color. Mm -hmm. these, these are the kind of things that would be said in um, preaching in Sunday school and the impact it had, it was a buffer against what Willie Jennings calls the aesthetic regime of whiteness. Mm -hmm. um, even sometimes when the darkness, lightness metaphors that are in scripture, they're there. Yeah. Like, aunties who were teaching Sunday school were like, now, baby, you dark, um, but that don't mean you're evil. Mm -hmm. um, they talking about something else. And then sometimes they would say, sometimes you got to find God in the darkness. Um, mm -hmm. And so those types of things shaped me deeply. But I would say the thing that shaped me most um, was story and song mm -hmm. um, in the AME Zion Church tradition. We had devotion service in the mornings before our service before started. Service, right. um, <laughs> and my granddad, Howard Hawkins, um, would sit up on the front row and get to stomp in his feet. And he would sing songs like, Must Jesus bear the cross alone. So he was like, when you're singing something like that in a black church setting, and the moans, it's like a mm -hmm. primordial power that begins to like rise up from the pews and like envelop you. And so those songs got in me in such a way that like I can never unsee them. I can never unthink them. Those melodies are like tatted in my heart, my spirit, my being. So when they sung, woke up this morning with my mm -hmm. mind set on set on freedom like those things stayed with me and yes i had a season where i went astray in some ways and and and, and took a detour into white evangelicalism but what i found is like those songs like were a bomb those songs reminded me of who i was and where i was to stand in this struggle for a new world mm. so i would say song and then lastly um story um we would go up to the Black Mountains in North Carolina um, to a camp called Camp Dorothy Walls. It was an AME Zion church camp. 
And the thing that was most, look, we played, we had fun, we swam, we talked smack, we did all the things. We started liking little girls and stuff like that. But the thing that was so impactful was the stories that they would tell us. Stories mm. from scripture, um, stories from those who rooted themselves in scripture. And those things, again, they just stuck with me and it shaped me deeply. I, I Sometimes I tell people, it's not fair, like... I, I feel like I had no choice in the matter. I'm not saying this from a Calvinist perspective. I'm just saying like the way my life was set up growing up in that space, like it was inevitable. Um, it was irresistible revolution. Now to School of Love, I may be answering the question a little bit too long-winded. Um, with School of Love, the rhythms that I named earlier are, are really our attempt to create structures, counterstructures to the structures of empire mm. that can have such a force with the spirit of God kissing it um, that begin to reform us, uh, that begin to put us in a place of resistance. And so the, the calendar, the Christian calendar, um, it's calling into question <laughs> the imperial calendar. Mm -hmm. um, we, we try to name these moments where something on the imperial calendar calendar uh, crosses over with something on the Christian calendar. We try to mm -hmm. put those things in dialogue and, and contestation with each other. Um, so walking people through the Christian calendar, our practice of prayer, which really like it has a liberation focus to it. Um, Y'all had Brandon, my, my dear brother, Brandon Wrencher on, I think mm -hmm. a couple of weeks ago. And his community in Greensboro, um, the Good Neighbor Movement, they do this practice called Lectio Liberatio. Um, mm -hmm. And they have about five <laughs> questions that they ask of the text. And so every Wednesday, we do a tarrying common prayer where we sit for about 45 minutes with the text. We always got to let song go out first because Africans believe you can't, you can't engage the word till the song mm -hmm. go out. So we start with song, we pray, and then we get into that text and we wrestle with the liberating themes and what vision is calling forth. Um, and then I, I think the practice of breaking bread connected to a commitment to participate in local justice work has really transformed and revolutionized folks' lives. Whether that be Black, middle-aged folk who unfortunately grew up in traditions where they had to compartmentalize their faith from their freedom dreams. Um, they're seeing a fusion, a connection. They're seeing a, a holism um, that they can live into. Or um, white folks, white liberals who are a part of our cohort. Uh, liberals, you know, Black radical tradition has amazing, cogent, biting critiques of white liberalism. Mm -hmm. um, so if any of these talking heads on the news and stuff try to make you think the black freedom struggle equals white liberalism, that's cap, as the young folks say. That's a lie. Mm -hmm. that's a complete lie. <laughs> um, I always tell people, uh, James Cohn, his primary focus is that's not right. white conservatives, it's the white liberals. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. What's the Cohn quote where he says the liberal wants to fight for the Negro without making any sacrifices? He wants revolution without blood. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Um, so... We've seen white liberals formed by MSNBC, CNN, the Democratic Party, begin in community to have a new lens and a new orientation and new practices where like, okay, I can't just call my governor. I'm not, I'm not mm -hmm. hating on calling the governor. I'm not hating on sending an email. But uh, what was it Daniel Berrigan said and Chad Meyer said is, says this quote mm -hmm. all the time. Hope is where your A is at, where your butt is That's at. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> 
So, like, yeah. if you have a hope for change, like, get down in the trenches with us. And we've seen white evangelicals um, really be pressed and pushed to, um, yeah, inhabit our local arena in new ways and to see their churches as spaces that they're still called to be in, but as arenas of struggle. Um, mm. And I think in many cases, gotten folk the label that John Brown got. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, these folk crazy. So yeah, that's some of the ways we think about and attempt clumsily um, to create counter structures um, to the empire that formed folks into God's love. Mm. Terrence, I'm fascinated um, the conversation between uh, what you're doing in the School of Love and uh, what you've been formed in on a Sunday. Um, and uh, often uh, in some circles, there's lots of um, disparaging remarks about Sunday services, um, uh, um, which uh, I always feel a little bit uncomfortable because sometimes that's the only thickness somebody has in their communal life. In particular, I'm interested to hear, um, uh, given your experience and um, your context, um, how did you see God reflected um, and discipleship as a communal reality um, uh, re reflected in what you experienced in Sunday? Um, and how are you living that out in the School of Discipleship? So, uh, I mean, the School of Discipleship, that is the School of Love. <laughs> so I guess there's two questions there about um, the reality of God that you sure saw depicted, the reality of discipleship you saw depicted, and then people's Sunday experience and those wanting um, to engage in um, uh, forms of neo-monasticism that you're also engaging with. Are they the same conversation? Are they different conversations? Would you speak to some of that? Sure, I'll try my best. So the Sunday morning experience um, in the black church, it, it takes on so much meaning, um, especially given the historical context. It's one mm -hmm. of the only spaces, as I'm sure everybody on this call knows, um, where, it was possible for the master's gaze to not be on you um, mm. or the postmaster's gaze, if you mm -hmm. will. Um, you know, even after the, uh, the abolition of slavery, we live in the afterlife of slavery. And so it was a coming together um, that really taught me something about what it looks like to show up for folks spiritually, financially, um, and mm. relationally. Because on Sunday mornings in my Miami Zion Church, um, you had testimony service, which allowed anybody and everybody to share what was going on in their life. Mm -hmm. And the posture of the community was to listen, to lean in, to be prayerful as they're sharing. And oftentimes mm -hmm. when folk confessed and shared something that was going on in their life, guess what happened after Sunday service? some aunties, some grandmas, some deacons, some trustees, they got together and they did what we now call mutual aid. Mm -hmm. um, and so it taught me that like your spirituality can't be disconnected from materiality. Um, in other words, if you are truly filled with the spirit, if you are truly um, allowing the scripture to dwell richly in your heart, um, that means you have to practice showing up for folks, caring for folks, 
seeking the well-being of your neighbor. Um, and so something about the AME Zion Church, even the prayer request time. So mm-hmm. come up to the altar um, and tell the pastor your prayer request. And then the pastor going to tell your prayer request on the mic. <laughs> and but I, as far as I know, the average mega church is not organized to do anything close to that. Right. Um, <laughs> like they may have a visual way you can put a prayer, but our Sunday mornings really allowed us to face each other. Their critiques, um, their ways in which preaching could be over centered, um, their ways in which like denominational institutional um, desires and and um, plans can sometimes subvert what needed to happen in that local church. So ab- we absolutely have critiques. But I think, yeah, just this sense of calling to be in community and show up for folks, I think, deeply shaped me. And that bleeds out into School of Love. Our cohorts, we practice mutual aid. So, um, Mm. you know, there are power dynamics in any space. And we try to subvert that in the way we do mutual aid, um, which is like, hey, we got to cash out any and everybody drop drop your coins in there when there's a need. Let's make it known to group of folks and we just redistribute no no questions asked um mm. we are always trying to open up space for folks to share their story always trying to open up space for intercessory prayer for us to bring petitions before god on behalf of our cohort members and i think you know i didn't mention this earlier but in the Amy zion church you know um for instance i was there uh when uh during the election mm-hmm. the 2020 and the, the pastor is not a Jeremiah Wright. He's not a Otis Moss. He's not a Katie Cannon. He's not an Ebony mm. Marshall Terman. He's not mm. a Lionese speaker in no way, shape, or form. Um, however, <laughs> he's not going to let the world be crazy and not say something. Mm-hmm. Um, and so something is said in the context of a gospel that's saying your life matters, God loves you. And something is said about what's going on. Mm. And, and at the least, there's a calling like, hey, we got to move different from what they're doing. I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. I'm not going to tell you what to do, but we have to move different from what they're they're doing. And something about that taking place in community and hearts and minds being linked together um, forms folks um, in the way that they act in the world. Mm. That's so good. That's so good. True. If I may, just because voting was mentioned. Now, Terrence, on this call at the moment, I can see friends from uh, a number of friends from Kenya, um, uh, not to mention those who are here from Australia. Uh, We have the UK, Norway, um, uh, and that's the the page that's up on my screen at the moment without clicking clicking on. We know that um, the American system is fundamentally broken in that you're voting for one or two people, but somebody who has been a big influence on me, um, who has been very kind to me, um, and I've got to speak with on a number of occasions um, and share a platform with, has just announced that he's running. And Drew, I know this isn't on the script, but if if if, if I may ask, uh, Dr. Cornell West has just thrown his hat in. Uh, Terrence, can can I ask you? And feel free to go. Nah, Jared, let's edit this out, or we'll save this for the <laughs> Q and A afterwards. I'm I'm not talking this kind of business. Woo! But I'd love to hear your kind of take because uh, I know that this is contentious because of how your system works. Yes, I am fascinated. I am absolutely fascinated by 
the fact that Cornell West has made this decision. I would hear him say regularly over the years, you'll find me in a crack house before you find me in the White House. Right. Uh, <laughs> you know, we, we know his infamous, uh, which I think were important critiques of yeah. imperialist in chief, um, Barack Obama. Um, All right. Given, okay. Giving space for, you know, his beauty and brilliance as Cornel West would say, uh, mm. respecting his humanity and his family, but also realizing his vocation. Um, and I'm, I'm riffing off of Cornell right now. I'm mm -hmm. deeply impressed. Um, his vocation is to keep track of it with the least, uh, not with the mm -hmm. Pontius pilots in them. Mm -hmm. And so this really like it's taken me a, a week or two to just kind of get my bearings. Initially, um, I thought it was a joke. Um, and then I said, OK, he's running with the People's Party. They're on the ballot in like maybe one state. And then I started saying, well, shoot, maybe this is a part of that black radical tradition where uh, radicals will run. Uh, a presidential, a mayor, a mayor campaign, city council campaign, and their aim isn't necessarily winning. Their aim is to use the voting mm -hmm. moment, voting apparatus, the voting, the rhythms of life within community to get people talking to one another to raise issues that the duopoly, um, mm -hmm. Republican and Democratic Party are not going to raise. And those within the duopoly who attempt to raise it are quickly co-opted or there are very, very dire consequences for pushing against um, certain wings of the Democratic Party. So all that said, I, this is not an endorsement. Reverend Sekou say all the time, I don't endorse politicians. I prophesy to them. Not an endorsement at all. But Ooh. I do. I find something very, very interesting. And it's pulling on my imagination to hear him do interviews where he's literally saying, I'm running for the presidential campaign for the cause of truth and justice. I want to be head of the empire in order to dismantle the empire. <laughs> like, that's fascinating to me as somebody who, you know, um, runs in abolitionist spaces. And we understand abolition not as like an end goal. It's a practice. So what does mm -hmm. it mean to practice a campaign that's geared towards the abolition of American imperialism, mm -hmm. towards the throw of settler colonialism. Corn Cornell isn't necessarily lifting up settler colonialism. He does in some spaces, but just mm. the way that he's talking about poverty and how it's impacting poor and working class folks in the nation, but he's globalizing it. He's running a campaign that's international. And again, it's going to sound like I'm endorsing him, but I, there are contradictions that I'm seeing. There are orientations and tendencies that Cornell has that I don't share. However, I am fascinated and in some ways encouraged by it. But to get to your question, yes, there is the narrative that so-called third-party campaigns in a season where it's the most important election ever, which we get every four years, like clockwork, um, are viewed or scapegoated as the reason why the Democrats might lose. You're going to take votes from Joe Biden and them. And I think there are counters to that. I think there are real counters to that. I'm not going to go too deep in the weeds, but I think there are real counters to that. I understand why people say that. But I think that black folk in the U.S. are a battered electorate. Mm -hmm. um, it's, a, it's, a, it's an abusive relationship. Yeah. Um, we are beaten and driven to the polls, um, browbeat. Just all kinds of rhetoric gets shoved at us. Um, as if our calling and duty is to save 
a false democracy, a bourgeois democracy through voting. And the black radical tradition, the black freedom struggle saw voting as one means towards liberation. Folk wasn't dying to vote, they were dying for liberation. But mm -hmm. the liberal narrative is that everybody just died for voting. So Fannie Lou Hamer is reduced, reduced mm -hmm. to voting activist. Never mind she was a revolutionary farmer. Never mind she was a pan-Africanist. Never mind she was trying to do reparationist work. Um, Martin gets reduced to a voting like, you know, a voting activist. Ella gets reduced to a voting act activist. Never mind the fact that she stood up in Puerto Rico and said, I can't be free in America and you can't be free here in Puerto Rico so long as there's such a thing as imperialism, capitalism and racism. Mm -hmm. And towards the end of her organizing journey, she was exploring and advocating for third party interventions as mm -hmm. just one tool in the tool belt. So I'm going to say this and shut up. I think at this point I might change my mind in two weeks. I think as it relates to electoral politics, I believe that there can be two strategies employed. We can view the Democratic Party as a site of struggle and run campaigns. I guess I don't have much energy for them. <laughs> and then on the outside, do third party stuff that at the least creates an ecosystem that might push the Democrat Party beyond the okie doke. Right. Um, mm -hmm. Hey, we're going to do police reform. Yeah. And guess what Joe Biden did after a 2020 uprising with uh, world record numbers of folks in the streets protesting? He gave more money to the oh, cops. Mm -hmm. That's right. <laughs> and I could go on and on and on and on about the betray quote unquote betrayals. They weren't really betrayals. This is the plan from the beginning. Biden mm -hmm. was sent to save capital and empire, to re-legitimize empire and capital. They ain't like the way Trump was moving. Um, and I'm not a Trumpist. Uh, as Cornell would say, a neo-fascist gangster. I agree that's with right. That. Yeah, but that—that's my take. <laughs> Y'all can erase this if you need to. No, 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 no. This no, is no. good. This is good. I—I I was having uh, a similar conversation about a week ago because um, I was at this global Mennonite peace building conference, and for one of the lunches, this conversation. We had some young people. We had some older folks. It was. And um, some of the older folks, you know, they're wanting to fall in line with the establishment of the Democratic Party. And like that was like the rule, right, is that you can't uh, transgress uh, what's going to impact the Democratic Party because we might get Trump or we might get DeSantis. Right. And that was the framing. And I think mm. it was a lack of imagination of other ways that this uh, uh, campaign can actually be productive and prophetic for really meaningful conversation. So we could mm. sit here all day. Um, you get me <laughs> activated, but I'm not going to stay there because um, uh, I do I, I, I do want to bring us back a little bit. Um, to some of your story, just thinking about liturgy a little bit more um, and formation and the ways that folks can be formed so that somehow in the United States, uh, you got white evangelicals, in fact, white mainlines, white Catholics all across mm -hmm. the board, majority for all of them, right? Because sometimes we put too much scapegoat just on white evangelicals mm -hmm. um, that, you know, they're formed in such ways that they can be drawn to Trump and then sing about Jesus as their Lord on Sunday mornings. So at what point did you realize that not all faith communities saw worship as a counter to empire and systems of domination? When, when, when did that hit you that, that there was such a contrast between how the black Jesus you were raised with and, uh, you know, the puppet for uh, social domination that other people were being followed, were following? Yeah, I think I knew it on a certain level as a child. But again, I was I was in a cocoon. Mm -hmm. um, 
um, what Jared Sexton calls a, a, an outer space, like a space outside of the domination system that can act in ways that you can. But here's what happened. Um, I, you know, I grew up black neighborhood, uh, went to black churches, went to a black college, uh, married a black woman, had black children, moved back to a black neighborhood, was still in a black church. And all of a doggone sudden, one day I visit a church and I have a conversation after that um, service and I'm invited to join the staff of a multiracial church within a Pentecostal tradition that is a mega church, but is pretty much oriented out around whiteness. And I will say I had a lot of, I was naive. <laughs> mm -hmm. I was naive, but this is 2008. Um, and so very quickly you get in a car with somebody and Rush Limbaugh is playing. Mm. Um, you learn of, it's an unsanctioned prayer group of folk that go to the church that are having intercessory prayer gatherings at their homes, praying for the assassination of Barack Obama. Mm. Not Ooh, because of his politics being harmful, but because he was just simply black and a threat to white supremacy. Um, then Trayvon Martin is murdered at the hands of George Zimmerman. And I'm pastoring in this context. Mm. And it's like, it's an onion that just the layers are continuing to peel. And by around 2014, I was completely clear that, wait a minute, these folk have been formed and shaped into what W.B. Du Bois would call the religion of whiteness. Mm -hmm. um, and Americanism is tantamount or equal to the kingdom of God. Um, the, the U.S. empire is the kingdom of God in their minds. And I remember distinctly, I think it was 2015, I'm, I'm singing on the worship team. I was a youth pastor and outreach pastor, black man doing three jobs on a mega church staff, getting paid less than everybody. But that's another mm -hmm. story for another time. <laughs> um, and we go back to the little break room after singing and the bass player, white brother, really cool um, sibling in Christ. He said, I want to show you a video from an old church service at this church. And it's a July 4th church service. And they had American flags covering this huge um, facility. They had invited the Navy, the Marines, the Air Force. Um, they had police officers on the stage. Mm. They sung um, the Star Spangled Banner. Mm. They sung the National Anthem. They sung God Bless America. And then after church, they had a big cookout at a park and they had military tanks there no, with American tanks. flags. Tanks? Yes, tanks. They had tanks brought to the church cookout. And I said, no wonder when I tell these folk these slice of vanilla folk that um, God ain't a Republican or Democrat and that the U.S. empire, the U.S. military is not God's messianic police force. No wonder when I say that I'm getting hate emails, death threats. Like it was a wild experience. Um, that is wild. It was one of the wildest experiences of that's my life. Worse than, I tell stories all the time. I've never, that's, that's beyond tanks. any of my stories. That's wild. They had tanks. That's wild. Somehow they figured out how to get some tanks to the event. And so folks were deeply formed into the religion of whiteness, which is deeply rooted in settler colonialism. 
which is yeah. um, conjoined to militarism, which mm-hmm. always co-signs carceral logics, policing of bodies and communities, which is always tied to patriarchy, which is always tied to antagonisms against um, queer folks, which is always mm-hmm. already doing harm to the planet, which is always already um, displacing and doing devastating harm to indigenous communities in the so-called Americas, in Africa, Asia, wherever it lands, wherever it goes, it displaces, harms, and destroys. It still kills and destroys. So mm-hmm. clearly, that's something off when we're supposed to be following a Jesus that said, I come to give you life and life more abundantly, and you are co-signing, championing, worshiping at the altar of a death-dealing um, phenomenon. Sheesh. Mm. Really, they got tanks. Tanks. I mean, I've met some nationalist, militaristic Christians occasionally uh, on my journey, you know, but that's a whole new level. That's but they, they don't have tank connections. They, they clearly have I don't, tank connections. I don't know the story behind that, but they had <laughs> tanks. And I almost passed out when I saw it. But it also was a revelatory moment. Like, okay, this is... These kind don't come out minus fasting, praying, and organizing in mass. That's right. That's right. This type of demonic stronghold, Mm-mm. my little self is no match for. It's going to take the power of God and organized struggle. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> well, Terrence, like, in light of that, the traditions that have shaped you and continue to shape you, what liturgies do you believe need to be reclaimed by the church in order to faithfully embody the good news to the poor, particularly in the midst of what you've named as like our climate crisis or ecological crisis. Um, uh, you've just expressed that um, legion is present in the church. Um, what are the practices that are actually going to exercise that from us? Mm. Mm, mm, mm. That's an incredible question. Um, to which I feel wildly unqualified to answer. I just want to name that. Um, I've, I think I've alluded or spoken on um, many of the practices that I'm engaged in. And, you know, I would say that we need embodied practices. Um, we need embodied practices within um, our worshiping communities. And what I mean by that, I'll I'll just give three quick examples. Um, For us, the freedom rides that drum majors does are like Mm. street lifts. And I think I'm riffing off. I'm trying to remember who I heard use that language. I was like, oh, that's what we're doing. because what we're doing is putting our bodies in spaces that are soaked in histories and present realities that are harming and hurting and um, anti the reality of, of God's love. So, yeah, we see we see deep transformation just by putting people um, in spaces where they generally um, for reasons that in many cases are somewhat beyond their control. They, they just don't dwell in these spaces. So 
figuring out how to move beyond our comfortable church buildings and putting our prayers, our scripture readings, our, um, our songs, um, putting them where the action is. It, it puts it, it, it makes things more clear. Like when you start singing a song downtown and there are unhoused folks walking around you, it automatically tells you the words of Hosea. Mm-hmm. Say, Hosea, don't, 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 don't bring me them, them songs. Stop the songs mm-hmm. till you let justice roll down. Like mm-hmm. moratorium on, on the singing and stuff. Like it, it pushes <laughs> you in yeah. ways that oftentimes yeah. our comfortable buildings and church gatherings uh, don't. Um, so that's, that's one thing. Secondly, I think we need healing practices and practices in community. Um, like Jesus was a healer. He had a healing mm-hmm. ministry. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, as a Pentecostal, there's a certain stereotypical understanding of what that healing ministry looks like fleshed out, which I believe in the laying on the hands. I believe mm-hmm. that God does stuff beyond what can be explained. And I think Jesus in those miracles is, is pointing us. It's a sign and a symbol of a practice that we can engage in. Um, yeah. and so I think we need, um, trauma-informed healing practices in our communities. Um, in Rwanda, after the genocide, the European folks said, we want to come and bring you talk therapy. And what, what I'm, from what I've read and understood is they largely rejected that because they said, well, the way we heal, we have to dance and we have to move and we have to be in community. So I think the church has to dance again. Mm. I think the Good. church has to like move its body. I think the church has to touch the earth. Like we need common prayer where we literally going to go out in the woods and sit on the land and Mm. allow to be felt in our soul and to understand our connectedness to it. We need practices that cause us to think through what, where is this product that I'm consuming? Where did it come from? Where did it come from? What's the process? We're so disconnected from the land. We're so disconnected from the histories. And so we have to figure out how to plug these into practices that we already have in, in conscious, creative ways. I'm not sure how well I'm, I'm getting at the question, that's but that, that's what's coming up for me. That's great. Very good. Hmm. Well, brother, thank you so much for uh, your time. Um, always, Always good communing with you. Uh, always grateful to have spent time with you and um, grateful for uh, your witness and for your story and for the gift that it's going to be to so many folks as well. And so, yeah, thanks for making time for us um, mm. here in Inverse. Terrence, if you're willing, there, there are so many people gathered from around the world that if you have time, I'm sure others would like to ask you some questions. This won't be included in the podcast, but if you have some time for some questions uh, coming in from around the world, we'd love to do that. But I know that Sister Naya isn't with us in person, and yet I can still hear her, Drew, saying, is somebody going to pray to close this meeting? Um, uh, Brother Terrence, would you be willing to pray for our listeners that um, have joined us? I'll do our our sending blessing that we do um, after common prayer gatherings. Now unto the one who was able to forgive sins, heal bodies, liberate the oppressed, and create beloved communities out of the ashes of injustice and division. 
to the only wise God whose son came not to dominate, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. May the love of God cover, carry, and keep us all until we meet again. Amen and Ashim. The Inverse Podcast is proudly supported by you, the listener. And if you want to join the revolutionaries who are helping us have conversations about how this ancient text can still turn the world upside down, why don't you head over to patreon.com slash inverse.